parlamento dell'Università. In, in our previous presentation, we have analyzed the sutras in which Patanjali was presenting his eightfold system, the Ashtanga, the eight stages of yoga. And uh, we had actually started with the presentation of Yama and Niyama, which uh, was very easy to go through because we have a very detailed analysis of Yama and Niyama in our first month yoga course. And uh, therefore we had stopped uh, at the Sutra number 45. We are in chapter 2, chapter 2, Sutra number 45, which was the last one consecrated to Yama. And Yama, it was consecrated to the fifth of the Niyamas, Ishvara Pranidhamma. And then starting with the Sutra number 46, Patanjali moves up the ladder to describing, to saying a few things about Asana, and then he will analyze Pranayama, and Pratyahara and all the stages which you know, the structure of the eight stages of yoga is well known to everybody who has been in the first month of yoga of this course. The sutra number 46 from chapter 2, which is the first one dealing with the asana, says, Steady and comfortable should be the posture or asana. This principle is essential. Patanjali defines and says an asana is that which is steady and comfortable. You should first of all not move in the asana. The first principle is steady, which means immobile. If you move, it's not an asana. That is why the problem comes that there are a few asanas in yoga, such as Dhanurasana, which can be done in a dynamic way. Even there, you have to apply the principle of Patanjali, that Patanjali says an asana is steady. Therefore, there are no dynamic asanas in yoga, and even the few which contain a dynamic phase, that phase has to be done in such a way in which is like mechanical, in which the body is like locked, so that there persists a certain steadiness. This is also at odds with modern tendencies in yoga to transform yoga in a sort of dynamic gymnastics. Then it's not yoga. Then those are not asanas. So it's steady and comfortable. Yes, it doesn't seem like, especially for beginners, it seems like some asanas will never be comfortable. The funny thing is that at least in some asanas, you have to strive to reach the condition where you can perform them comfortably. An asana, according to Patanjali, has to be steady and comfortable. If it is not steady or if it is not comfortable, it has not been brought to the full level of asana. That is why in this school we prefer sometimes to tell to you, even if you cannot do the asana perfectly from a physical standpoint, you push till the limit of comfort, but not beyond that. If you perform asanas with great effort and pain, that is not comfortable. Many people say, well, some asanas then can never be performed. It's not true. Even in some asanas which are very demanding physically, 
If everything else, such as the breathing, the concentration of the mind, is done right, then automatically that asana mysteriously becomes comfortable. It's challenging, but comfortable at the same time. So this principle is fundamental. It's if you apply this principle, this limiting block, this, like the razor of Okam of Patanjali, it says an asana is not an asana unless it is comfortable and steady. That's the definition of an asana. And on sutra number 47, he continues. This is achieved by loosening the effort and by meditation on the infinite. This is a wonderful sutra. It describes a wonderful principle. It says this is achieved, like steady and comfortable should be the asana. And this is achieved, how to make it steady and comfortable. How to eliminate the need to move all the time and how to make it go into a comfortable place. This is achieved, says Patanjali in the next sutra, by loosening the effort, so the asanas are not done with effort, loosening the effort, and by meditation on the infinite. Meditation on the infinite is the most essential and simplified way of doing asanas, Patanjali is not an expert in asanas because he does not teach Hatha Yoga. He is an expert in Raja Yoga. That's why in Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga, there are very many tricks and specificities about focusing on a certain Nadi, on a Chakra, on cosmic energy, telluric energy, this and that. Patanjali does not go to such level because he is not an expert in asanas and he is not going into the, into the practical details of that. Patanjali analyzes Hatha Yoga asana from the standpoint of a Raja Yogi. So he like sees yoga, Hatha Yoga from outside. It's like a bird's eye on Hatha Yoga, on asanas. And that is why Patanjali gives a very general solution to asanas, but this general solution has the advantage that it's brilliant, it's spiritual, it's high, and it's universally valid. And always when you don't know how to do an asana, you can always apply this general advice from Patanjali, which fits to all the asanas, wherever you are. He says, this is done by loosening the effort, so you shouldn't put too much effort, and by meditation on the infinite. Meditation on the infinite would mean, in the easiest meaning, meditation on the universe, because the universe is the body of the infinite. Meditation on the cosmos, on the infinite, on the macrocosm. In a particular meaning, it can mean meditation on the infinite consciousness, but Patanjali does not say meditation on God or meditation on the infinite consciousness. He lives it like this. He says meditation upon the infinite, which is just like a concept. You meditate on the concept of infinite and it seems to be infinite. To our view, the macrocosm seems to be infinite. That is why Patanjali says when you make an asana, it can be Pashimotanasana, you should loosen the effort and meditate on the infinite. 
the Hatha Yogic texts like Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Garanda Samhita and the others, they come with details. They say you can meditate on the celluric energy coming in your Muladhara chakra, moving up the spine, back through your arms, through your arms and back through the legs. These are already highly specialized information which comes from experts in that field. Patanjali does not split the hair to such detailed levels of experts. He just gives one formulation which is valid for all, for all the asanas. And for all the asanas, you can always do this. Loosen the effort, just do as much as you can, and on or meditate on the infinite. Basically, a way, a correct way of doing the asanas is, you could try for comparison, to take, for example, Paschimottanasana, and in Paschimottanasana to go as far as you can, if you are flexible enough, you go deeper, and you start meditating on the infinite. You simply, all the time, you don't focus on the body, you don't focus on chakras, you don't focus on circuits of energy, you meditate like you are floating in the middle of the infinite, and you are one with the infinite. Meditation on the infinite has many catches to it, and you are going to hear those later when actually Patanjali defines meditation. Now he did not define meditation, but he anticipates by saying, by meditation, concentration, whatever you want to call it, for him they are very different, of course you see that, by meditation on the infinite. This is a general advice. If any one of you sees an asana, an unknown asana in a book, and you want to do it right, if your yoga teacher is not available and you didn't reach to that point and you didn't learn that, there is a solution given by Patanjali. And Patanjali says you can do any asana by loosening the effort and meditating on the infinite. It is to be presumed that if you sit and meditate on the infinite for hours, days, you will also feel the chakras and the nadis and the effects. It is presumed that this is how the first people who discovered the asanas discovered their secret action. They stayed in an asana, they meditated upon the infinite, and after a number of minutes, hours, days, of course not necessarily continuous, after they did this practice for a month, every day, half an hour, they started feeling that their Manipura Chakra, or in the case of Pashimottanasana, to continue with the same example, the Muradhara Chakra, was getting active. And then they drew the conclusion, this asana is awakening the Mulakara Chakra. This is how it has been discovered. But it started from a general, like everything is possible. I focus on the infinite. I concentrate on the infinite, and then practice will show. This is a very good information. If ever you are stranded somewhere and you have no information, here is a brilliant, genius advice from Patanjali, how to discover how yoga techniques work, in this case the asanas, not the others. How to do the asanas, without effort and meditating on the infinite. I hope you remember this, because it's a wonderful advice. It's true, in this school especially, you benefit of much more advanced uh, advising, counseling, because you are being told directly the final result, what has been discovered by other yogis, before you, that if you do this asana, it works like this and like this, and the energy goes in this chakra, and this of course saves a lot of time, because you start already from knowing where you should go, and then it's just a matter of practicing until you can feel those things. But else, 
It is possible to do it the hard way, and the hard way is the way Patanjali says, starting from scratch, starting from no knowledge whatsoever. And then the next sutra, the last one about asanas, Patanjali concludes with the effect, general, a general observation of him, and he says, thereby, by loosening the effort and meditating on the infinite and performing asanas as steady and comfortable, thereby the pairs of opposites cease to have any impact. Of course, the first thing when you think about pairs of opposites is, of course, yin-yang, because yin-yang is the very concept of pairs of opposites. So basically, Patanjali says, when you bring asanas to perfection, yin and yang have no more effect, like you are not carried around by yin and yang, by solar and lunar. There is a whole theory which can be debated only partly because it's way too long and it doesn't have its place in this uh, lecture, in this series of lectures that I do here, but just for you to know the basics of it, there exists information, there exists branches of yoga, both in the Indian yoga and in the Tibetan yoga, which are called the yoga of the sun and the moon. In Indian yoga, one of them is Hatha yoga, so Hatha yoga is actually a classic example, but it's not the only one. There are other branches, there are applications of this sun and moon, yang and yin, as well in laya yoga, in kundalini yoga, in svara yoga, and generally in tantra yoga, because every time we get to speak about energy, we have to speak about polarity, because energy always has polarity. And Patanjali says that you can surpass this polarity, this being actually the typical understanding that this whole universe is conditioned by polarity. All the chakras up till Ajna chakra have polarity, but not Sahasrara. All the levels of the universe are yin and yang, but not the divine level, which is one, which is not polar. And therefore, there is always the idea that as long as you are conditioned by polarity, you are prisoner in samsara, in maya, and if you go to purusha, to nirvana, then you are out of polarity. So polarity is like equivalent to manifestation. As long as there is polarity, there is manifestation. When there is no more polarity, there is non-manifestation. There is transcendent. As long as there is manifestation, there is polarity as well. And therefore the point of the yoga of the sun and the moon in India and in Tibet is to transcend polarity, to go beyond polarity. The most typical example of polarity in tantric yoga is the breath through the left and the right nostril. Breathing to the left nostril is yin, breathing to the right nostril is yang, and our breath constantly goes in the left nostril, in the right nostril, and as long as we are a bit to the left or a bit to the right, we are in prakriti. That is also valid concerning our subconscious mind. The subconscious mind, those of you who are in the second month of yoga and read the text about the laws of mind, the subconscious mind, there is one of the laws of mind in the second month, which says the subconscious mind is related with the circulation of energy through Ida Nadi and Pingala Nadi, minus and plus. 
But the superconscious mind, the consciousness, is related with the flow of energy in Sushumna Nadi. Therefore, when you reach the middle channel, you have transcended the plus and the minus. It's like a pendulum. If it goes to the left, it goes to the right. It's left, left, right, left, right, and it cannot stop. Left, right, left, right, tick and tock, and tick and tock. But if you put it in the middle, it stays, it freezes, it dies. Therefore, as long as there is left and right, there is agitation. In philosophy, the, op the dialogue of the opposite is called dialectics. Dialectics is like the opposite, create dynamism. As long as there is yin and yang, the universe is dynamic. But Purusha is static, because it has no yin and yang, and therefore there is no agitation, there is no movement, there is no dialectics, there is no tension between a pole which is plus and a pole which is minus. There is just oneness. And therefore, the yoga of the sun and the moon and all these, their purpose is to actually freeze the polarity, to surpass the polarity, to go beyond yin and yang. That's why what Patanjali says is very important. He says, thereby, through this practice of asana, the pair of opposites cease to have any impact. This can be taken in other ways. It's like hunger and society, or it is like cold and heat. Or it is like pleasure and displeasure, or other opposites. It's like you do asanas, you don't feel pain and pleasure. You don't feel hunger and thirst. You don't feel cold and heat. It's like you go beyond opposites. Technically, this means that you go from the subconscious mind, or the circulation of energy in Ida and Pingala, now in Ida, now in Pingala, now in Ida, now in Pingala, to evenness, to equanimity, to this equality in which the breath goes in the central channel and basically you are beyond opposite and you have reached a state of superconsciousness. What Patanjali says is actually beautiful because Patanjali says through the practice of asana you can go beyond polarity, which means you can reach Sahasrara, which means you can reach superconsciousness. Therefore the asanas are not just a gymnastics. The asanas are a method through which you can go beyond polarity, beyond yin and yang. That's very, very good, because only God is beyond yin and yang. Only your soul, only the Supreme Self, the Atman, is beyond yin and yang. Only the Great Void is beyond yin and yang. And therefore, uh, what Patanjali says is very, very deep metaphysically because he says the asanas are an instrument for transcending duality. You can transcend the duality by a steady and comfortable posture done without effort and in which you focus upon the infinite. That is the principle and it is very, very simple. If yoga is practiced in this way, then it is yoga. If it is not practiced in this way, it becomes a superficial thing which does not aim to spirit. It aims to some partial accomplishment, such as I want to make flexible my lower back. That you can do with gymnastics. With yoga, you can transcend the manifestation. And that's an entirely different story. 
And then starting with sutra number 49, he moves to the next step, briefly analyzing pranayama. He says, the asana having been done, that having been done, so he implies, well, you better do some asana before doing pranayama. That's why in this school we first teach asanas and later we start teaching pranayama, starting with the second month. And, and also in the yoga program, first we do asanas and then in the end we do pranayama. That's not my invention on somebody, some of my teachers' invention. It's from Patanjali. Patanjali even says not only that asana is lower and coming before, but he even mentions it like this, that having been done, the asana having been done, there follows pranayama. So it's much, much more traditional to do first asana and then pranayama. Some schools uh, don't respect that principle. That the asana having done, there follows pranayama, the cessation of the movements of inhalation and exhalation. The first definition which Patanjali gives to pranayama is, pranayama means, he says, the cessation of the movement of inhalation and exhalation, which means pranayama means not when you breathe. Pranayama means when you don't breathe. If you can stop your breath, that's pranayama, because from the standpoint of tantric yoga, pranayama means that you live with prana. You don't need air and oxygen to live, but you live with prana. And when you live with prana, you don't need to breathe. That's why the more you do pranayama, the more you can hold your breath without breathing, because your heart chakra starts accumulating prana. And then automatically the physiological need can be diminished. And the cessation of movement of inhalation and exhalation. And then he gives a very general, like a real Ajna chakra generalization, he says in the Sutra number 450, Pranayama is external, internal or suppressed, regulated by place, time and number, and becomes prolonged and subtle. This is like a synthetic title referring to every single aspect in Pranayama. Here are some elements of it. Pranayama, according to classical yoga, has three stages, Puraka, Kumbhaka, Rechaka, everybody studying this in the second month, third month, has them in the papers. Uh, that means inhaling, exhaling, and the holding of the breath. So, Patanjali says it is like bringing air in, bringing air out, or suppressing it, holding the breath. These are the things which you do in Pranayama. Then he says it is regulated by place, time, and number, and here are a few things. Practice depends on place of practice, such as a tropical or temperate climate. It also depends on local diet. A detailed description of the rules are given in Hatha Yoga text. So there is a reference to place, which simply says some pranayama shall not be done in the sunshine, because your body becomes too hot. There is hot pranayama, fire pranayama, which traditionally in India, if they didn't have a cool place to do it, they had to do it in water. You have to stay, sit in water up till your neck and do pranayama in water, in a lake or in a river, because if you do it outside, your body would start boiling with heat and you might even die. You might even hurt yourself. Therefore, pranayama is depending on place. Also, the diet is included here in the commentaries, which simply says, if there is a certain diet, then you might have to adjust your pranayama. 
like when you eat very spicy food, then you have to adjust your pranayama because your spicy diet produces a lot of fire in your aura, in your energy system. And there are 101 rules about this. Time means the relative duration of Puraka, Rechaka and Kumbhaka, inhaling, exhaling and retention. It also means the time of the year or the season. Thus, some authors say that if you practice 20 rounds during the winter, you should practice 10 rounds during summer, and so on and so on, the number of rounds. Uh, so, some people have, or the practice experts in Hatha Yoga, have found out that in Pranayama there are rules which depend on place, on space. There are rules which depend on time. If you do Pranayama in this time, in that time, in this season, in that season, or there are also a lot of rules about how you hold your breath. Those of you who did yoga in this school until the fifth month and on and who have learned the Sukha Purva, Pranayama and others, you know that there is a whole story in yoga about the rhythming of the breath, the rhythms, how long time you hold your breath, how long time you inhale, how long time you exhale, and so on. They give a whole rhythming. It's like a dance. And exactly as if you beat the drum in a certain way, it creates a certain rhythm which suggests a certain emotion. And if you beat the drum in another way, it suggests another rhythm and it generates another emotion. Exactly in the similar way, it's with the breathing. If you breathe in a certain rhythm, it gives some effect. And if you breathe in another rhythm, it gives another effect. This is the whole science in Hatha Yoga and in Pranayama about the place, as I said, adapting it to place, diet, climate, and so on, adapting it to the time, like in the daytime, in the nighttime, adapting it to the rhythm. So that's why it says it is regulated by place, time, and the number that you number, you decide this, there will be this ratio, this rhythm. And finally, so, he basically gives us a general survey, a bird's eye on pranayama. Pranayama is made of this, this, and this. It depends on time, space, and so on. And it becomes prolonged and subtle. This by this, he tells us where it goes. He says pranayama is external, internal, or suppressed, regulated by place, time, and number, and becomes prolonged and subtle. That's where we go in pranayama that pranayama becomes prolonged and subtle. Therefore, yes, the slower you breathe, the more advanced you are in pranayama. In advanced pranayama, you get to breathe very, very slowly, and the rhythms are extremely difficult. A normal person would choke trying to do those rhythms, because it's like it's going very slowly. That's a sign of advancement in pranayama, that it becomes prolonged, and subtle. The more is your pranayama, the more gross and primitive it is. The more subtle it gets and prolonged, the more you are there. Remember that theoretically the perfect pranayama should mean that you can stay without breathing for long periods of time. Therefore, there is a peace. Pranayama goes towards a form of peace of breath. That is why pranayama, like the asanas, is not going towards something dynamic and agitated. It's not exhilarating and whipping up. On the contrary, calming down. With asanas, you calm down the body, 
and you get stable and relaxed and meditating on the infinite. And with pranayama, the movements of breath become prolonged and subtle, and you are, your mind is moving at a new dimension. Therefore, these things are essential to understand, because they can show you immediately when somebody does an error. Teaching asanas and pranayama with a different spirit than this is automatically erroneous, because it takes you in another direction than the direction of spirit and spiritualization. So that is a general description and it gives us so many hints, it can it could correct so many errors in practice. And in Sutra number 51 says the fourth stage of pranayama is that which transcends the internal and external concepts, which means there is no more inner retention, what we call in pranayama here in this school, full retention and void retention. It's like retention can happen anywhere and the breath stops in a kind of midpoint. Basically what pranayama, what Patanjali suggests here is that at the superior level of pranayama there is no more need for all this game of inhale, exhale, hold in, hold out because the breath stops by itself and one is absorbed in higher states of consciousness. But that absorption is neither internal nor external. It's not full retention or void retention. It's somewhere in the middle. As you breathe, the breathing calms down and at some point it stops. But it doesn't stop in or out. It stops like midway, in a balance point somewhere. Therefore, Patanjali describes actually the transcendent pranayama, the time, the moment when pranayama reaches at the level of the void. Exactly as the asana goes beyond polarity, pranayama also goes beyond polarity, beyond internal and external, inhale and exhale. It goes to a place where there is no inhale and no exhale, just balance, peace, harmony equanimity, equality of the two. Therefore, here we can't speak about internal retention, external retention, or kumbhaka of any kind, retention of the breath. And he gives us the effects of this pranayama in sutra number 52, where he says, thereby, through this approach to pranayama, the veil that covers the light gradually disappears. The light is obviously a symbol for the divine nature, for the Supreme Self. And he says, the veil that covers the light disappears. Normally, there is a veil that covers the light, which simply says, normal people don't see the light. Because, so to speak, metaphorically, because it's not really a light. Yes, some people have spiritual, mystical phenomena under the form of luminous phenomena. But it's not to be taken literally as light. Yes, the nature of God in Tantric tradition is called Prakasha. Shiva is Prakasha or the supreme uncreated light, which is a light like no other light. It's not even the light which you see in your dreams. It's something else. Okay, that's kind of the uncreated light, the light beyond light, the light of all light, a kind of supernal principle of spirit as manifested as vibration, as effulgence, 
and which is perceived as some sort of spiritual light. And he simply says, there is a veil that covers the light. That veil is nothing else but the veil of impurities. Impurities in the physical body, impurities in the etheric body, impurities in the astral body, impurities in the mental body, which are all like screens that interpose themselves between us and the source of light. And the more these screens are, and the more opaque and dense they are, the less we see the light. So normally the human being sees a light which is extremely, extremely dull. It's like people don't even realize that there is a light. It's exactly like you will be almost in utter darkness. You would be in a night without moon, and it's almost dark, but because the stars are there, there is a feeble light. So if you stay in such a moonless night, after half an hour your eyes get accustomed and you can see something. Most people live like in a moonless night. There is no light, simply. Our, we see something, but we never infer the existence of spirit. When we look at each other, when we look at the world, when we look at objects, and when we look at the sky, we should theoretically see God. Because God is everywhere. God is here. Now. And yet we don't. We look at each other. If you look at another human being, you should see God. Because God is in that human being and that human being is in God. If you look in the eyes of a human being, you should see God. Because there is spirit. And that spirit is God. It is a drop of the universal consciousness. Many mystics have said there is no higher manifestation of God on this planet than the human being. If you cannot see God in a human being, then you can't see it in anything. But yet we look at each other and we don't see God. We look at the sky and we don't see God. Because there are veils that cover the light. The yoga theories claim that the more you practice yoga through the purification of the physical, etheric, astral, mental body, you start seeing more and more. It's exactly like two people look at the sunset and one of them sees God. I remember, I, that's the only time when I had to have a job in the communist times when I was in Romania, I had a boss who was a very sensitive person. He was a man with a heart. <clears throat> he was a family man with three kids who was occasionally drinking and doing things. But somehow I've noticed with surprise that this man had the heart chakra open and he was spontaneously a man who was spiritual. And we were working in an office, in an electronic design office, and at some point I remember, even now the scene, there came a storm. And as soon as the storm passed, the sun appeared and then beautifully a rainbow appeared. And this boss of mine, who was a man working as an engineer in a communist factory in a communist country and without any religious background whatsoever, he, we are all looking through the window because somebody said, see, look, there is a wonderful rainbow. And everybody went to the window to see the rainbow. And then this man exclaimed, look, how can some people say that there is no God? When he saw the rainbow, he saw God. So many people see rainbows and they never see God. Because their heart is not sensitive. They are dull. They are skeptical. They are cynical. They are impurified. And they look at a rainbow and they say, those are little droplets of water in the air that refract beams of light from the sun. 
For some people, a rainbow is an optical phenomenon. And for some people, a rainbow is a symbol of the divine. For some people, a flower is just a biological phenomenon produced by a plant. And for some people, a flower is a symbol of God, is a symbol of paradise, it is a symbol of something amazing. That, that is why some people are poets and see what other people don't see. And this is exactly what yoga says, we can open your vision, we can make you see God in flowers and rainbows if you do asana and pranayama. Here he refers to pranayama. Pranayama removes the veil that covers the light. Therefore, the more you do pranayama, the more spiritual you become. That is why pranayama is very, very important from the standpoint of spiritual development. And all of you who reach to the level of practicing and learning pranayama, you should practice everyday pranayama. Because pranayama, even when you don't see it coming, pranayama, Patanjali says, removes the veil that covers the light. The more pranayama you will do, you will start seeing the light. You will look at other persons, you will look at sunsets and rainbows, you will look at flowers and nature, and you will see God. This is the result of the opening of the heart, first of all. That is why the Christian mystics, those of you who have heard me reading about the awakening of the heart, according to St. Peter of Damascus, they have the quality of meditating upon the creation. That was exactly what St. Francis of Assisi did. St. Francis of Assisi was always praying to the brother sun and sister moon, to the brother fire and to the mother earth, to the birds of the sky. and to Wherever Francis of Assisi looked, he saw God. He saw the master creator. For him, fire was God. For him, the sun and the moon were God. For him, all of it was the creation of God, and he could see it. That shows that Francis of Assisi, the veil that covered the light was very thin, or not at all anymore, and it shows that it was also related to the heart chakra. So this secretly gives us a hint that especially pranayama, because it, it, it absorbs energy through the heart chakra, through the respiratory area, through the channels of energy from the area of the lungs, and those of you who learned about pranayama in this school know exactly the technology to which I refer, and the others will learn it in the second and third month, then automatically it simply says that pranayama purifies anahata, Specially, and generally it removes the impurities that make us incapable to see the light. Remember that to see the light here is a metaphoric thing. It doesn't really mean light. You look at a rainbow and you get quivered with emotion and it's like you see the most amazing miracle in the world. And the dull, skeptical person says, Ah, yeah, a rainbow. Yeah, what's the big deal? Haven't you seen a rainbow before? This is the whole difference that some people see and some people are dull. They don't see. They are blind to these things. And he continues in the sutra number 53 by saying, and fitness of the mind for concentration develops through pranayama. That's another very important thing. Many people say, how can I become better in mental concentration? Patanjali has answered that already. 
He says, fitness of the mind for concentration develops through pranayama. In the very se- in the second month when all of you learn pranayama, it is being in the lecture that is said there is a contact, a connection between sexual energy, vitality, vital force or prana, and mind. If you manage to harness the breath, you can harness the mind. Therefore, if you stabilize the breath, you stabilize the mind. Therefore, if you manage to do pranayama, you can concentrate your mind. A concentrated mind is always illustrated by a very steady and calm breath. As Patanjali says, prolonged and subtle. If your breath is prolonged and subtle, your concentration of the mind is good. And oppositely, when you breathe irregularly and chaotically, your concentration of the mind is going down the drain. Therefore, pranayama teaching you to calm down and stabilize, it is actually a gateway towards concentration of the mind. That is the reason for which your mental monkey will try to stop you from doing pranayama. I am telling this in the first month when I teach Shambhavi Mudra and later. The two practices which are least done by pupils in yoga are pure concentration of the mind, such as Shambhavi Mudra, how long time since you did some Shambhavi Mudra, for example, and Pranayama. Mysteriously, because Pranayama is so powerful, so rewarding, and people don't do it. If the teacher does it in the class, they do it. People rather do asanas. They go home and you say, did you do some practice today? Yes, I did. What did you do? Oh, I did some asanas. Good. What is the pranayama? It's like, oh, pranayama, yeah. I didn't do it. Why? It's the mental monkey which simply says, don't do pranayama because you are going to tame me and I don't want to be tamed. Pranayama is like a harness on the head of a horse. You can harness the horse with pranayama. You can harness your mind with pranayama. And that's precisely why your mind desperately says, no, 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 no pranayama. No time for pranayama today. You should always have time for pranayama because it is powerful. It removes the veil that covers the light and it makes the mind fit for concentration. Therefore, if any one of you is extremely distracted mentally and finds great difficulty in doing concentration of the mind, do some pranayama, if your mind allows you to, and if your karma allows you to. If not, you will always live like a victim and say, why don't I concentrate? Start with the breath. The breath is an excellent method for controlling the mind. And therefore, the effects are wonderful for pranayama in the way in which Patanjali says it. And he moves in the sutra number 54, the last but one of this chapter, to the next level, the fifth stage of yoga, which of course is pratyahara. Pratyahara that commonly we define as the withdrawal of the senses, as isolation from external disturbance and stimuli. And Patanjali, in his own words, says so. Pratyahara is, as it were, the imitation by the senses of the mind by withdrawing them from their respective objects. And the explanation which I wrote down here is, if the sense organs are insulated from the external stimuli, they begin to follow or imitate the nature or stimuli of the mind. 
a typical experience of Pratyahara, which is accessible to everybody, and we will try to have a sample of that in the school sooner or later, is the famous Samadhi Tang, the sensory deprivation experience. The Samadhi Tang, which had a big success in the 70s, it was like some easy yoga for the hippies. The Samadhi Tang is basically a tub full of a very dense liquid, like in the Dead Sea, like a very salty water, but they use some special salt, and it is saturated to the level where you flow on the water. It's so dense that you can't go, you can't sink into it. So it's a very dense water on which you flow. The water is brought to a temperature where you don't feel it, usually around 34 degrees Celsius, which means it's like lukewarm, but it's lukewarm to the point where it feels neither cold nor hot. It's exactly the temperature which is average for you. And this water, then you are lying down in this tub. You don't touch the walls of it, it's big enough. So you float like in a small pool, and then the whole thing is covered, and it's in total darkness, and it's in a room which is isolated phonically. So you don't see a thing, you don't hear a thing, and you don't feel a thing, because you float in a tub of liquid which is at body temperature. In the moment when somebody puts you in such an environment where you don't see, don't hear, don't feel, your brain is at a loss because suddenly the input of the senses goes down to zero. The brain is not fed by anything. And then what is happening, that is like an artificial pratyahara. You cut the very source of the stimuli from outside. And then the brain starts producing very vivid images, very vivid sensations. Because your senses, because they don't receive signals from outside, they start picking up signals from your memories, from your imagination. So it's like, if I cannot walk, I can imagine that I walk. And therefore I'm starting having like hallucinations, dreams, daydreaming, intense things, because I'm like suspended in the middle of nowhere. Some people compare it with being in the womb of your mother, floating in this amniotic liquid, which is... You are not breathing, you are not feeling, you are in a warm liquid which nourishes you, and basically you are in a sort of void. That's why some people have tried the Samadhi tank in the 60s and 70s. It was called Samadhi tank. But more scientifically it's called sensory deprivation unit, because it deprives you of any sensory input. And the idea was that being into this, you could actually even reach some forms of Samadhi. You can reach some forms of superconsciousness. Maybe not the highest forms of samadhi, but you can reach some small time samadhi because you are floating in this nothingness and in the beginning you feel you are going to go crazy. But if you start meditating and focusing on the chakras, on the high chakras, in this thing, then things will go very easy because it's like a perfect environment for you to focus the mind. And Patanjali is very, very smart. They observe this thing without uh, Samadhi times. He said, Pratyahara is, as it were, the imitation by the senses of the mind, by withdrawing them from their respective object. The senses imitate things, because I see a light, this light hits my brain, and therefore I'm having a reaction to it. But if I don't see any light, then my mind starts creating light. My senses refer to the brain. They say, give me a signal. Give me something, because I have to do something. 
and therefore my senses are fed by my memory, by my imagination, by my inner thing, and therefore I start living a kind of inner life. I am completely cut off from the outer thing, there is no light, there is no sound, there is no sensation, but if everything is like I am living internally, I am having an exceptionally intense inner life, that is Pratyahara, that I cut off from the external stimuli, like when I do Padahastasana, I don't see, I don't hear, and then my mind takes over, and what I do, I start doing with my mind, because I'm not disturbed by external stimuli. And therefore, uh, the comment again, if the sense organs are insulated from external stimuli, they begin to follow or imitate the nature or stimuli of the mind. This is simply internalizing your life. For five minutes, for half an hour, uh, when we'll open our healing center and ashram and the others, we will have uh, samadhi time there for the experiments, for this spiritual experiment, in which some of you will be able to see very easily, with some small things, that some big effects can appear if you put your mind and body in special conditions. And finally, the sutra number 55, which is the last of this chapter, ends by saying something about Pratyahara. He told us what Pratyahara is, cutting off from the external stimuli and going inward, and he says, therefrom comes the highest mastery over the sense organs, which simply means, if your mind can tell to your sense organs something, then it doesn't matter what comes from outside, you can master them. For example, you, the outside it can be hot, and if you close your eyes and do Pratyahara, you can suggest to your mind, through your mind, to your sense of touch, that it's cold. And then you can start having goosebumps, although it's 35 degrees centigrade, and everybody around you sweat. Or you can go in a bathtub with ice cold water, you can even put a bucket of ice cubes in it to make it really ice cold, and in the middle of an ice cold water, you can start sweating. If you close your eyes and cut off from the sensation of cold, and ask your mind to give you the sensation of heat. And then your body, your brain, perceives, oh my God, it's hot, it's very hot in here, while actually it's cold. This is what he says, therefrom comes the highest mastery over the sense organs. You can master any of the five senses and the mechanisms related to it by this, because you can basically create this capacity of the mind, which is pratyaha. And now, a little bit of time will dwell into that, not for long. I would like to start with you tonight, the chapter number three. Finally, the long chapter number two, consisting of 55 sutras, has been completed. I have explained uh, what Patanjali goes through in this chapter. And actually, as you can see, he stops in the middle of the listing. He listed five levels of yoga, yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, and actually you will see that the next three, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, he puts them in the chapter 3. He doesn't, he separates them, because according to him, chapter 3 is dealing specially with the mind, and with the results which come from controlling the mind. But remember that before controlling the mind, one should control the body, one should control the breath, and one should control the senses, the sense organs, through asana, pranayama, Pratyahara. 
That's the order, the classical order in yoga. When that is done, even a little bit, then one is going deeper. The way we teach yoga in this school, with these asanas, done slowly and for a long time, and this, it is ensuring that you go through asana, through pranayama, through pratyahara, through the concentration of your mind and all the other things, and that eventually you reach to the dharana, dhyana, samadhi, the higher levels of yoga. Funny enough, again, Patanjali separates them. He stops the third chapter with the first five, and the last three, he analyzes them extensively in the third chapter. That's also because Patanjali is a Raja Yogi, and he's very much interested in this Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, the yoga of the mind, and that's where he finds his full field of expansion. Actually, the third chapter has a very surprising name. It is called Vibhuti Pada, while the first ones were, this one was called Sadhana Pada, and the other one was called Samadhi Pada, the description of the first things in yoga was in Samadhi Pada, and then the uh, Sadhana Pada, the one about practice. The third chapter is called Vibhuti Pada. You may have heard the name Vibhuti, because it refers to some sacred ash, and some people use it as a symbol of miracles. Uh, the Vibhuti Pada, therefore Pada is a chapter, is a part. It actually literally means foot, like in Pada Hastasana, but it is used like the leg, like the next leg of this text, the next leg of yoga, in the metaphoric meaning of section, of the division, and Vibhuti Pada, Vibhuti is therefore referring to paranormal powers, to paranormal abilities. You will see that the vast part of this chapter, it is consecrated by Patanjali to the paranormal abilities which come from the use of the mind. All kinds of amazing things which sound like miracles, and yet which are explained by Patanjali very rationally and very psychologically, and which are of the nature of paranormal. So basically, the third chapter is perhaps the most exciting of all the Yoga Sutra. The first chapter, those of you who heard me talking about the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, because that was last year, the first chapter is very metaphysical. There he defines the spirit and Purusha and Prakriti and the different forms of Samadhi and stuff like this. In the second chapter, he defines the impurities the kleshas, the karma, and all the things, and he talks that yoga is the method to get out of that, and he starts defining yoga and describing its practices. And in the third chapter, he gets to the advanced yoga and some of its exceptional effects, which are paranormal powers, miraculous effects, and other extraordinary effects of the mind, and this makes the third chapter the most colorful. When the, whenever people refer to Yoga Sutra, they usually remember the third chapter, that Patanjali says that if you do some yama on the sun, you can obtain the knowledge of this and that, and you can have this state of consciousness. This is how the third chapter is. It's a very exciting chapter, which is very much related to Ajna Chakra, but not only. And it is a chapter which basically defines very soon the glorious accomplishments which can come through the perfect mastery of the mind. Some of them are simple and they will be accessible to many of you, for many of you, and some of them are highly advanced accomplishments. 
and uh, they are accessible only if you transform your life in yoga and yoga in your life. That means some of them are things which are available through a moderate practice of yoga and some of them are available only if you have reached masterliness, complete masterliness in yoga. But the first sutras are still explanatory and that's why I wanted to go a little bit through the first sutras, uh, not more than 10-15 minutes, not to tire you too much tonight. Um, and they introduce, first of all, he owes us the continuation of the listing of the levels of yoga. He reached to level 5, Pratyahara, and now he has to continue with level 6, but he does this in this chapter because here he has to go into the processes of the mind. And therefore, we are in chapter number 3, and we start with the sutra number 1. The sutra number 1 simply says, concentration, dharana, the sixth level of yoga, is the ceaseless binding of the mind to one point or object. That is what you have been taught already. Concentration is the one-pointed focusing of attention. He says the ceaseless binding of the mind to one point or object. Everybody knows what concentration of the mind is. The most simple way of exercising concentration is, for example, when you look without blinking in a dot on a wall. You draw a dot on the wall, you sit in front of it, you look without blinking, and you try to think of nothing else but the dot. That's the most banal exercise of concentration of the mind, and of course it's much easier said than done. Concentration of the mind is a process which is a faculty which is developed gradually, slowly and gradually, but it can be developed. He will not say more about concentration of the mind. He says, he jumps in sutra number two to dhyana, meditation. He says, dhyana is the harmonious continuation of the cognition or mental effort therein. Basically, he relates it to concentration. Therefore, dhyana proceeds from prolonged and deeper dharana. He says, dhyana is the harmonious continuation of the cognition therein. Therein where? In that point. Concentration is the ceaseless binding of the mind to one point or object. And meditation is the harmonious continuation of cognition therein. Which means, if you concentrate longer time, harmoniously, you start getting into meditation. Concept meditation is a prolonged, harmonious, deeper concentration. That's exactly what we say. That's exactly what we teach. When you focus on something, your mind starts expanding in this harmonious expansion of the mind, control expansion of the mind, and that's meditation. Patanjali does not define yoga by the words which I defined it in the first month lecture. When I say meditation is a harmonious a, a, a control expansion of the mind. That my formulation. Patanjali has found another formulation which also has its own meanings. Perhaps it is not so eloquent or explicit, but he simply says dhyana is the continuation of the cognition therein. Like you, cognition. What is cognition? It means to know. So it is like the deepening of knowledge therein. I look at a dot on a wall. I know it. Well, if I want to know it better, I look more, and then I will know more. It's like meditation brings more knowledge than concentration. 
Meditation is knowledge without knowledge, as I often said, and therefore meditation is a deepening of knowledge. Concentration is the first level of knowledge, meditation is an expanded knowledge, a deepened knowledge. Therefore, on one thing you can concentrate, and on the same thing you can meditate, by going deeper, staying longer. If you are superficial, you want to stay a little bit and go away. But if you, want, if you are profound, you want to stay on it, and stay on it, and stay on it. And with every moment you stay on it and concentrate, you get to know more and more things. You feel your knowledge gets deeper and deeper. And finally, he jumps directly in Sutra number 3 to Samadhi. You will understand why he so quickly says, 1, Dharana, 2, Dhyana, 3, Samadhi. The Sutra number 3 says, that state, meditation, becomes Samadhi when there is only the object shining, as it were, devoid of its own form. It's another way of defining Samadhi than what we do here. Again, less clear, uh, by Patanjali, he says, meditation becomes samadhi when there is only the object shining as it were devoid of its own form. Devoid, devoid of its own form is a very sophisticated statement because devoid of form means it has, it has no name and form. In Indian metaphysics, the lower characteristics of manifestation are defined in Sanskrit as namarupa, either in one word or slash, nama slash rupa, this means name and form. And everything is defined as name and form. I look at this fan, the first thing which my mind says is its name, I know it's a fan, and I approximately have its mental representation as a form. That's already a very low level, it's a very material level, it's concrete. At the higher level, this fan is beyond name and form when it rejoins the spirit. The spiritual principle which corresponds to this fan is beyond name and form. It's just the archetype, it's the idea which is beyond name and form. And therefore, Patanjali says, at the level of samadhi, whatever you perceive, when you perceive something, you don't perceive its name and form anymore. Because he says, Samadhi, where there is only the object shining as it were devoid of its own form. Not only form, name as well, but he doesn't say it, because in India they know it. They say no form, there is no name. It's Namarupa, they are one and the same thing. And therefore it's, it's between the lines, that meaning is included in uh, the text. And therefore, what is he saying? I'm looking at an object, like I'm looking at this video camera, and it has no name and form, in the meaning that my brain doesn't think that this is a video camera, and doesn't see it as a video camera. This is actually samadhi, when in the moment when the meditation has reached such an expansion, that I see all the aspects, it's like a simultaneous view, the mind is omnipresent everywhere, the size of the universe, and therefore it doesn't move, it freezes. It's in a state of awe, and then I am seeing, but I'm not analyzing what I'm seeing. I'm just seeing. I'm seeing, but I'm not thinking. My mind would desperately want to say, this is a camera. But because it's everywhere, 
doesn't have the time, it's too busy. It's like, it's a task which is pending, and it is frozen. It's a, so my mind, meanwhile, is so busy with this simultaneous perception, that it's frozen, and I don't even have the time to say, this is a camera, it looks like a camera. No, that is why Patanjali is right psychologically when he says, uh, Somebody, the, only, the object alone is shining, as it were, devoid of its own form. Because indeed there is no more judgment in your mind about form and name and anything. The mind sees it. That's why the Zen masters of Japan, they call this state Satori, direct vision. Like you see, and the understanding is full, but you don't need to think. You don't say, this is a sunset. It's a sunset without you saying that it's a sunset or thinking that it's a sunset. It just is. And your mind is one with it, but you don't need to think. We always have this desperate hunger to think, to label. Well, what, what, what is this? What is this? Uh, this is a camera. Okay, I feel at peace because I called it a camera. It's like if I called it a camera, my mind is satisfied because I put it in a drawer because I identified it. But if I am beyond that state, if I am before that state, I am in a state where the camera is there and I can't say it's a camera, although it is a camera, and I am with this camera. And I don't have to call it a camera or to identify it as a camera. It's like a mind before mind. It's like a pre-mind. It is like a consciousness which predates mind. Mind is just a commentator. You have a football match on the screen and the commentator says, now this guy kicked the ball and gave it to the other one. Why the heck do you talk, man? I can see for myself. No, I don't need a commentator to comment the football match for me. You are just telling me something which I see anyhow. Why do I need a commentator? The mind is the commentator. The mind always tells you what you see and what you do. And yoga says, shut it up from time to time. Shut that mind up. Just watch the sunset. Don't say it's a sunset. You don't need to call it a sunset. Just be the sunset. Be one with it. Merge into it. That is the way Patanjali describes samadhi. When the mind is so expanded that it has no time for small tasks anymore. It goes directly into oneness. Into satori. Into direct vision. And it should be, of course, noticed that dharana turns in dhyana and dhyana turns into samadhi. Because he says, that state becomes samadhi when there is only the object shining, so they are not separate. Dhyana is advanced dharana and samadhi is advanced dhyana, ultimately. So, in dharana the consciousness is fixed on one object, in dhyana it's like a continuum of knowledge because it's this expansion going deeper, and in samadhi it becomes one. And therefore, it is like reaching at the level of the Supreme Truth. It's a reality. It's the way things are, without any commentator commentating for you what is happening in your life. And the fourth sutra is remarkable. And he says, the three, that's why he went quickly over the three, because now he comments them in block. His Sutra 1, Dharana is this, Sutra 2, Dhyana is this, Sutra 3, Samadhi is this, and now he comes back 
but on all three at the same time. This is how he found fit. This was his way of thinking. He says the three, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, concentration, meditation, samadhi, unified simultaneously together, constitute samyama. Samyama is a word which is not one of the eight stages of yoga, but which is a special state of consciousness defined by Patanjali in Yoga Sutra and which is a state of consciousness which is exemplary and which is completely, completely important in the practice of yoga, not only in Raja Yoga. Again, Patanjali says, the three, dharana, dhyana and samadhi, unified simultaneously, which means when you are able to do concentration, meditation and samadhi at the same time, they simultaneously together constitute samyama. Samyama is a very, very important word and it is used extensively in Raja Yoga and Patanjali uses it in the next sutras a lot. It is by Samyama that you can do all those miraculous things. That is why it is necessary to first of all reach to the level where you can do Samyama. Samyama in the presentation of some Indian authors and yogic authors today sounds as something very abstract and almost impossible to define. Actually, Samyama in practical yoga is something I wouldn't say quite simple, because it is not simple, but it is at least simple to understand. Some Western authors, they found a brilliant way of translating the word Samyama, and this gives you the deepest or one of the most consistent meaning of the word Samyama. Samyama from Sanskrit is translatable in English by the word identification, to identify. When you do samyama on the sun, it means you concentrate, meditate, and enter in samadhi with the sun until you identify with the sun. Samyama is a process in which the mind can make you identify with something, with the tip of your nose, with a black dot on the wall, with a tree, with the sun, with anything, with your Ajna Chakra, with anything, with any object of concentration, physical or non-physical, imaginary or real. And therefore, Samyama is a very, very beautiful process. Samyama means you can identify. Samyama says, if I concentrate on you, I can reach to a level where I identify with you which simply says, I feel as if I were you. Theoretically, it is possible, and that's something which appears even in Yoga Sutra, and it's something which great yogis do anyhow, very easily even, that you can identify, and the most easy way to understand, because if I say I identify with the black dot, or I identify to the, with the sun, it like, sounds like madness. It's like, what does it mean that I identify with a tree? It's like completely nonsensical. But you can at least understand this much, that you can identify with another human being. It's a normal language thing. I'm telling you, you try to identify with him. What does it mean? It means try to feel as if you were him. 
Try to put yourself in the shoes and the skin of the other person. Give up your own ego for 30 seconds and try to become that person. Can you? Well, some people can. This is the miracle of concentration, meditation and samadhi performed together. They generate a state of mind in which the knowledge is so complete from alpha to omega, both through concentration and through meditation and through direct vision, that actually the object becomes one and mysteriously you can identify. If, for example, I would identify with one of you who has a liver disease, I would instantaneously start feeling pain in my liver. I, it doesn't mean that I'm going to take over your liver disease forever. Identification does not produce that unless you go beyond that level and you start operating on the karma transfer. But identification is a method of knowledge. I look at you and suddenly I feel like you. And when I feel like you, I feel a claw in my chest because you are a smoker and I feel how bad your heart chakra is and I feel a pain in the liver and it's like my own liver is swollen and painful and then I'm asking you, do you have any liver problems? And you say, yeah, how did you know? I performed identification with you. I felt you. I became you for 30 seconds and I know about you maybe even more than you know because you don't have awareness and you never look at yourself. I am doing some yama with you and suddenly I can feel you and I can feel that you are sad. And I'm saying, are you sad all the time or only today? And you say, no, no, usually I'm a very cheerful person, but today I'm sad. How did you know I was sad? By Samyama. I can identify with you. It just takes a little time. Some people can do it almost instantaneously. For some people it takes time. The more advanced in yoga you are, the more you can do it in a fraction of a second. Ramakrishna could do Samyama like this, in a fraction of a second. Others, beginners, not real beginners, but average students of yoga can do samyama, but it takes them, for example, five minutes. I have to sit in front of you and look in your eyes for five minutes until I start merging with you. I start feeling like you. And when I merge with you, I can perceive a lot of things. I can perceive the state of your body, I can perceive the state of your prana, I can perceive your emotions, I can perceive your mind, I can sometimes see things from your previous lives, I can know things which you yourself don't know about you, because Samyama is a way of knowing. We can never know the sun until we perform Samyama with the sun. If you want to know what the sun feels like, you have to identify to the sun. It's not enough to study it scientifically. The sun, yes, Surya Deva, the sun god from Surya Namaskara, feels in a certain way. Did you ever wonder how would it feel if you were the spirit of the sun? If you were the sun god? Well, you know what? You can. You just have to make some yama with the sun. That's all it takes. If you make some yama with the sun, you identify with the sun. If you make some yama with the sun five hours every day, in the moment of your death you will be reborn as the sun god in the solar system. Because you already have become like the sun. Your spirit has become so vast. 
and so developed that you have become at the level of a deva. And you will most probably, through the samskaras that you develop, become a son somewhere. Be ascribed that your spirit, after it leaves this body, it should be ascribed the task of being the sun god of some god-known solar system somewhere in this universe. Therefore, <coughs> samyama is the perfect knowledge. This is the knowledge of the mind. For example, Jesus did not really need to be the father of a child to know what the father of the child felt like. Because he could look at the father playing with his child, do samyama, and become that human being. And then you know, and you know even more than that human being knows, because that human being often is, but doesn't, doesn't have awareness of it. It is mechanically what it is. But you as a yogi, you can become that thing, and have the awareness of it, like realize what you have just felt and experienced. While some people do it mechanically, and they never realize what their experience consists of. And that is why Samyama is actually one of the great secrets of yoga, and especially of Raja Yoga. And it is a capacity which is related with higher chakras, especially Anahata Chakra and especially Ajna Chakra, and it is called in slang, in Western slang, identification. The Patanjali has found out that if you concentrate in a certain way and meditate and reach a certain level of Samadhi, so thus you become completely absorbed, you become that thing. Not 100%. First, 1%, 3%. 5%, 10%, 20%, 50%, maybe 100%. The Samyama is an example, a typical one, is given by the Tibetan master who is teaching by his pupil that he should sit in his cave and meditate and she, he should imagine that he is a yak because the only thing which he knew were yaks because he was a yak shepherd. And this guy sits in his cave and he, he imagines he is a yak and the teacher comes after three years and says, come out and, uh, hey, hello, are you there? And the guy starts shouting from the cave and the teacher says, what's happened? It's I, it is I, your teacher, I came to talk to you about your practice. And the guy wails from the cave saying, I can't come out because my horns got stuck into the walls of the cave. Like, you don't know if he really had physical horns, but he thought he had horns. He had, I meditated on a yak until he had become a yak. He was feeling like he was a yak, and therefore he had horns in his perception. He don't care if they were physical or not, but according to his mind, he had horns, and the horns got stuck in the walls. And the teacher was pleased. He said, right, this is the right disciple. This one really meditated, because this is what it is. The others just came out of the cave, their meditation was superficial, but this one had obtained the results. This is Samyama. It's actually that this man was doing Samyama with a yak. You can do Samyama with an elephant. You can do Samyama with a pole star. You can do Samyama with a tree. You can do Samyama with the sun. You can do Samyama with your belly button. You can do Samyama with the most incredible thing. And actually incredible results come from that. This is the surprise of Patanjali. That the Raja Yogis have played with the mind in this way. And they discovered that amazing things come from this. 
The only difficulty is that you should be persevering and serious until you manage to do some yama, at least 10%, at least a bit, which means you should practice every day concentration of the mind, meditation, insist on the meditation until it becomes like an absorption, a samadhi, and that results in a combination, in a cocktail of the three, which is a very peculiar state of mind in which one feels absorbed. One becomes what one sees. The thing upon which you concentrate, you become that. That's called identification. You identify mentally with the object of your concentration. It's like you concentrate until you are like sucked in that reality and become that. The feeling of Samyama is extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. It may sound as a joke to you and as a theory, but first time when you will succeed Samyama, you will see that the feeling is overwhelmingly real. It feels like if you identify with a person who looks the other way, you even feel that you are the other way. For example, if the sun is there, and you are with the back to the sun, and the person with whom you identify is with the face, you feel that the sun is shining on your face. It's completely like you are not here, but there. The, the position of the body and everything feels completely like the identification can become total. To show you that this is not just an aberration of the yogi, I have to tell you that scientists have demonstrated that even some psychedelic or entheogenic substances can produce chaotic phenomena of identification. One of them, which is uh, pertaining to a psychedelic plant called Salvia Divinorum, produces this phenomenon. <coughs> there is a whole book written by the effects of this chemical active alkaloids from it, and people who took it, they suddenly identified spontaneously with the most crazy thing. For example, one of them says, I was on the beach, I took this substance, and when it hit me, I was watching my dish with french fries. And in the next moment, I became a dish of french fries. He said, it's impossible to explain how it feels to be a dish of french fries. But for 30 minutes, I was a dish of french fries and nothing else. He says, it's completely mad. Another one said, as when it hit me, I was looking at a building, at the corner of a building, and suddenly I became the southeast corner of a building. He says, I can't explain more than this, but he said, for minutes in a row, I had the consciousness that I was the southeast corner of a building, and nothing else. There was no more Walter, there was no more history, I was the southeastern corner of a building, and that was all. Therefore, it is known, even chemically, that the mind can reach this property. Well, the yogis did not induce it by drugs, they induced it by a mental discipline in which they learned to control this phenomenon and not to use it chaotically because you don't get anything but a hip trip that you become a french fry dish. It's much better that you should be able to use this voluntarily and constructively. For example, I would like to feel, here is an example, I am a person who has no mulakhara and my friend Walter has a lot of mulakhara and all my life I have been frustrated that I am not having vitality and I always envied my friend Walter for his incredible energy and vitality. You know what? 
I can make some yama with water and feel what it means to be a vital person. Or if you want, you will see even here is given, I can make some yama with an elephant. Why go to water when I have a much better example of vitality? An elephant. So I sit and focus on an elephant until I feel I am the elephant. And then I will know what vitality means. That will awaken my Muladhara chakra. And if I do that one hour every day, in six months my Muladhara will be as big as an elephant's Muladhara. And I can... Samyama is the way of knowing, of arousing the chakras, of developing paranormal things, of acquiring anything. If you want to develop your Manipura, make Samyama with the sun. And then your Manipura will become as big as the Manipura of Surya Deva. It will be even too big for a human body sometimes. Therefore you can, or if you want Manipura from a human being, make Samyama with the painting of Napoleon. And there you will see what Manipura chakra can mean. And therefore, you can make Samyama as an excellent way of developing, of knowing, of it. All it takes is this preliminary discipline, that you should practice concentration, meditation, and reach to a certain level of absorption, Samadhi. Again, not the big Samadhi, the spiritual one. This is a primitive level, which is possible to reach. And again, it's not black and white, it's like I'm perfect in Samyama. I am 10% good in Samyama, but 10% is amazing, because a person who can do 10% Samyama can look at a tree and understand things which a normal mortal will never understand. A person who does Samyama can look at the sunset and see and acquire things which a normal mortal will never see or acquire. A person who does Samyama can feel other people, a person who does Samyama can learn from other people, a person who does Samyama can learn from the elephants and from the flowers and again from the sun and the moon and from everything in this universe. That is why Samyama is so important. However, Samyama, as you can see, seems to be very much a, a talent of manifestation, of Prakriti. Like you can do it with things from here, the pole star, an elephant, the sunset. What is the spirit? It's not here. That is why the Buddhists, the original Buddhists from the Theravada, from the old original Buddhist tradition, they denied this. The Buddhists understood that the yogis from India did Samyama, and basically they called this Samyama Samadhi, they didn't realize that there were three things stacked together, and they just took the higher of them, the more difficult. And that's why when you read Buddhist texts, you are going to find with surprise that they use the word Samadhi with the meaning of Samyama. And they say, we are not like the yogis of yore in India who are searching for Samadhi. And then people get confused. They say, what? In Buddhism you don't search for Samadhi? then it means either Samadhi is not good or Buddhist is Buddhism is wrong. But actually they are wrong because Nirvana means Samadhi. Nirvana is Nirvikalpa Samadhi. It's just two names for the same thing. So it's not that the Buddhism don't search for Samadhi. The Buddhists don't search for this Samadhi involved in Samyama because they consider that they are not interested in paranormal powers. Some yogi worked for 10 years to make some yama with the elephant, and he sucked in the power of the elephant. And the Buddhists say, and so what? What is the usefulness of this? It's a siddhi. It's a paranormal power. What's the big deal about it? We are not interested in that. We want samadhi. I'm sorry, we want nirvana. 
And that's why they would say, uh, we are not interested in samadhi, but by this they mean samyama. It is a feature of Indian yoga and of Tibetan yoga as well, that these yogis were doing samyama. And as you are going to see, this chapter number three is not very much about enlightenment and liberation. It's about paranormal abilities. It's a bit of a tantric thing, because this is about prakriti, not about purusha. All these forms of samyama are meant to acquire manifested qualities, not states of enlightenment. Things which you can use down here, abilities, energies, chakra arousings. And the original Buddhist was very puritanic. Said we don't need all that shit about Samyama with the pole star and on the pit of the throat and on the elephant and only stupid yogis do that, it's a waste of time. We are just searching for nirvana. Remember, because this confuses many people, the original, the early Buddhist uses erroneously the word samadhi instead of samyama. And it is true that there is a core of truth in what they said, because many yogis were practicing endless exercises of samyama in that time, which were aiming at paranormal capacities, not at enlightenment. And in a strictly Vedantic and Puritanic way, they were right. Yes, why practice samyama on the pit of the throat, trying to achieve the power to do this and that? You are not interested. It's a city. It's a paranormal power. You can live without it. It's much better to reach nirvana rather than to reach that. While that is, fanatically speaking, puritanically speaking, while that is true, yoga doesn't say that you should practice samyama forgetting about God or about your liberation. It says you should do that, but at the same time you should know that the mind can also collaterally do this and this and this and this. That's why Samyama should not be a distraction for you from the path to complete Samadhi. Samyama is like some branches of yoga, some collateral branching of yoga at a high level, which are allowing to the advanced yogis to use their mind in a very creative way. Because, for example, if I am a yoga teacher and I can feel my pupils by doing Samyama with them, then I can help them better, because I simply understand them and their problems better. That is why to be able to do samyama is not such a stupid thing after all, especially if you are a spiritual teacher, a yoga teacher. That is why the Puritanic original Buddhism is a little bit too fanatic at this cutting off everything and saying, no, we don't need Samyama because actually we do need Samyama sometimes and life becomes better if you can master Samyama. The only danger <laughs> is that with Samyama you can acquire paranormal powers, stop at the level of Ajna and never make it to the level of Sahasrara. So you will become very powerful but not enlightened, which is a pity. So, of course, here is the deal. Patanjali speaks about Samyama and what follows, and that will be a great gift, but it can be a deviation, it can deviate you from the path to enlightenment, because it can be a temptation. You can be more tempted to do Samyama on something and obtain this amazing power, rather than obtain enlightenment. You should always think in these terms, what do I want more, to reach enlightenment or to have this paranormal power? 
If you want more of this paranormal power than enlightenment, you are on a wrong path. You make the wrong choice already, because you should always give God the first place in your life. If you don't give God the first place in your life, you don't give him any place, says Ruskin. Therefore, you should always meditate that to know God is much more important than to be able to levitate or to become invisible or to do I don't know what. That's the danger and that's why Puritanic Buddhism tried to get rid of this danger by simply not going at all into Samyama and these things. But Yoga, Patanjali, is here more broad-minded. And he says, hey, we can have both Nirvikalpa Samadhi and Samyama and its applications. More about them next time.